Well, since really July, we've been in kind of a short series on the Psalms of Ascents, which are numbered in your Bible as basically 120 through 134, and we're going to keep on this for a few more weeks. And if you'll remember from past weeks, uh, Psalms are songs the people of God sang, and really the Psalms are the hymn book, the hymnal of the Bible, and they cover, if you just read through them, just about every emotion, every circumstance, everything a human can go f- go through, you can find them in the Psalms. And the ascents were sung on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the three uh, great yearly feast days of either Passover, or Pentecost, or Tabernacle, uh, which is sometimes called booths as well. Well, this week we're working through uh, Psalm 128, which is a, a short psalm, but there's a lot to it. So let me read it for us. Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruits of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, great is your faithfulness. You are faithful to your people. You are faithful to the covenants you have made with them that the psalmist can make these claims hundreds of years after you made that covenant with Abraham and again with Moses. And Lord, you are faithful to us. You have been exceedingly good to us through Christ. So now we pray that he might be glorified in this, that we might see him and hear from him, that that what we do here would not just be mere meditation, not mere thinking through what these words mean, but would shape us in our hearts and our minds and our feet, that we might walk in your ways and love you most. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Well, I I like to say, uh, in fact, I repeat myself a lot, that that Christianity is hard, because I think it is. It's hard, especially in our hyper-individualized, pursue your happiness and your desires at all costs American life that we have. Christianity is completely unnatural or really opposed to what most people think of as the good life. So it's hard to love God and your neighbor when everything is telling us to love ourselves most. But beyond that, I've said that Christianity is hard really in response to people like, like Friedrich Nietzsche who said Christianity was a crutch for the weak, a slave ethic, a way of coping for the losers of life who couldn't stand on their own. Nietzsche was, of course, wrong because it's, it's far easier to present the veneer of righteousness, you know, a thin, superficial morality that is widely accepted as you pursue whatever you want. You know, me before you is, is the way of the world. It always has been. It's the easy choice. There's nothing hard about me choosing me before you. I mean, even what we want to live the Christian life, even when we want to love our God and our neighbors and truly believe it is the best possible thing we could do, our hearts betray us. They often betray us before we even know what we are doing. And our faces you know, may wear a mask of, of calm or serenity, but internally, 
If you belong to this God, internally we are fighting a constant war against ourselves, a war which our culture calls foolish or even abusive. Christianity is hard in the sense that when you walk in the ways of God, even just a little bit, the world will reject you for it. So, for example, I knew a guy uh, who was a tremendous athlete, trained hard, he ate clean, I mean, all that, that stuff. And he was in his 50s, mid-50s, doing Ironman triathlons and putting up serious times. I mean, just competitive times. It was incredible. He looked 20 years younger than he really was. It was so impressive, and I, I really admired his discipline and his dedication to the sport, but he told me that he was regularly made fun of for being fit. Like he was crazy for doing it. And it was, of course, usually unhealthy people who mocked him. What a waste of time, man. What are you doing? Why not just enjoy yourself? You know, pursuing God, which is another way of pursuing, saying pursuing life, is just like that. It's just like that. You will be mocked for valuing this God above everything else. I mean, the the dead will laugh at you for pursuing life. And we talked about this two weeks ago. I mean, you may often feel alone in this battle. You can feel that that way even in church. People will withdraw from you. And in places like, like Greenville, it may very well be the people who claim to follow Jesus who reject you for following Jesus. You know, in my experience, it's not the people who openly reject God that make things hard for us. I, I can handle that. It's, it's the people who claim Christ and live nothing like it and then encourage me to do the same, either you know, directly or, or indirectly, that makes things really hard. It's not when your cultural enemies reject Jesus that's hard. It's when your friends and your fellow Christians do it in the name of fun or freedom. I've been affected by that, and guess what? I've done that to people. But on the other hand, as as Eugene Peterson points out, the way of the world is in reality far harder in the long run, even as it is the easiest choice to make. And it's harder precisely because you have to be a God unto yourself. And that was Nietzsche's point. That's what he wanted people to do. He wanted to be a God unto himself, and it's not easy to sustain yourself because you're on your own. So you have to make something of yourself. You have to prove your worth. You have to please yourself. Or really, it comes down to please whoever you think matters most. And you have to be true to yourself, whatever that means. And you have to protect yourself at all costs. So, you know, for all the talk about be yourself, you are in fact a slave to what others think of you. And no one can live as if what others think of them doesn't matter. Everyone does this. It's why when you know I see videos of young people doing all kinds of things on TikTok or Snapchat or whatever, and by the way, young people and old people too, none of this stuff is private. That's the myth. None of it is private. There's always a record of it. There's always somebody taking a screenshot. There's always somebody taking a screen video of what you're doing. And when I see that stuff, you know, it's not evidence of freedom or liberation or self-expression. When I was young, I thought that. 
No, it's always a picture of slavery, of how the culture or your friends want you to be. And if you don't be that way, then you're not accepted. And it's very much like being in the middle of an ocean with, with thousands of other people around you. And all of, all of you are, are just treading water, hoping to stay afloat, but it's only you who can save yourself. And nobody can swim indefinitely. You see, sin and death are the results that come from separation from God. And if you are separated from God, then by definition, you are on your own. And thus, you must find a way to save yourself or define yourself or to do whatever it is to give yourself value. And guess what? There's no shoreline. None of it. This is precisely why our times, and this affects everyone, by the way, this is why our times are characterized by hyper-individualism and why most people have some level of anxiety and depression and loneliness and fear, Christian and non-Christian alike. It is so hard. It is so tiring, so enslaving to constantly pursue yourself. And without God, the world is a fearful, terrifying place, which leads most people to just bury their, hand, their heads in the sands of, of entertainment or self-medication or whatever. But as the psalmist makes clear, it's actually a whole different world. A whole different world when you belong to God. He writes there in that first line, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his way. Everyone, male, female, child. Everyone who walks in his ways. And notice that word blessed. Let's start right there. To be blessed it's not merely to be happy, though it, it may include that at times. It's why when Jesus says blessed in, in the Sermon on the Mount, like blessed are the poor in spirit or those who mourn or those who are persecuted for Christ's sake, he doesn't have in, in mind a, a happy emotional state. You're, you're not going to be happy while you're mourning. And I don't think the Christians in Afghanistan right now who are bracing for the Taliban resurgence, they may feel blessed, but they are not in a happy emotional state right now. To be blessed, you see, is to enjoy God's favor, is to enjoy his presence, is to belong to God and be one of his children. Christ enjoyed all of those things, and he was not happy all the time. It's not based on your circumstances, you see. You, you can be blessed in the midst of cancer or when standing in front of a firing squad. To be blessed is to know God and to have his steadfast love. And now this is opposed to those who are cursed, those who do not enjoy his presence and thus do not know him. They are treading water in the middle of the ocean, hoping for an outcome other than the obvious one. And notice there too that it says, Lord, in all caps throughout our psalm. I try and point this out every time you see it in the Old Testament. That's God's personal name, Yahweh. This is the same God who created the heavens and the earth and who spoke to Moses at the burning bush and rescued Israel out of slavery and death in Egypt. So those centuries have passed since those events. The psalmist knows the same God. And as Jesus teaches, this same God is now our father and has made us his sons and daughters through Christ, engrafting us into the people of Abraham. But think of it this way. It's not just that we have come to know God. It's that he knows us. 
the creator God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, knows you by name. He knows you by name. Like people get overwhelmed when a celebrity says, oh, hey, John, (gasps) he knows my name. It's just a human. The one who made all things knows you by name. And I love the lines that come from Isaiah 43 when God says, you are precious in my eyes and I love you. The God who made all things knows you. He sees you. He loves you. He finds you precious and he has saved you from himself. Now, of course, all those yous are actually y'alls. I think that's the right translation for that. They're all y'all. So God knows his people together. It's why when we say creeds together, we say, I believe, and we mean both, of course, individually, but as one voice, as one people together. Now, the word fear there does not mean a cowering, please don't crush me sort of fear, though that's not necessarily a bad fear to have. You know, I think many of us view God like how we view lions at the zoo. You know, we, we can see that they are dangerous, but we don't fear them because they're kept safely in their enclosures. How would we see lions if we were in the enclosure with them? I think we'd rightly freak out and we would hope that they were both kind and well-fed and would take no interest in us. So we you know, have every reason to fear God who made us because he can do with us whatever he wants. He sees everything about us. Nothing is hidden from him, even our thoughts. He knows it all. But because we belong to him, though he's dangerous, he's actually good. He is good to us. So when the psalmist says fear, it's much more akin to reverence. It's awe. It's the, the sort of attitude someone has when they recognize the grandeur and the power of something greater, far greater than themselves. It's recognizing, believing, and living out the reality that God is God, and we are not God, and that's crucial. This is what's so often missed in our culture. We, we aren't equal conversational partners with him. Do we have conversation? Yes, but we're not equals. He can do with us whatever he wants, and yet he is close. He chooses to come near. He has come near to us. He's kind, he's gracious, he's tender, and he has promised us life forever with him. And this is what I think so many people miss about God. He saved a people, not just a bunch of individuals, but a people because he wants to dwell with us. Think about that. It's so hard for us to pursue him or to make him relevant we are completely relevant to him. Think about that. He chooses us. He wants to know us. You know, it's very much like my children. You know, my wife and I wanted kids, not for the sake of just merely putting more people in the world, but because we wanted to share our love with them together. And you know, it's not one son or the other. It's all of them. They aren't a burden or a nuisance to us. They're expensive, but we don't count the cost. We don't care. I I want to spend time with them and find them beautiful and amazing, even in their sin. Our family, as a family, would be diminished without all of them. Well, that's how God is with his people. That's how he is with his people. He wants to know us and be close to all of us together. So in other words, this congregation 
needs you. And you need this congregation. Well, that's why we are blessed. We know this God. But more importantly, he knows us. Now, the psalmist puts the phrase, fearing the Lord and walking in his ways together. Now, remember what we've been talking about over the last several weeks in terms of discipleship and pilgrimage. Discipleship is not the accumulation of facts or trivia about God. It's learning to walk in his ways. It's like a person who wants to learn how to be a carpenter or an artist. It's really an apprenticeship. Is there information involved? Of course, of course there is. But you can't be a carpenter or an artist without actually learning how to do the work with the tools and the materials of the trade. Now, you can be an art historian or a theorist or appreciate art or the skill it took to build something. I'm that way with this building. When I walk around and look at the woodwork here, it's incredible. But I'm not a carpenter, not even close. No, you have to be engaged in the practice. You actually have to be working at the thing. You have to walk in the way. It's, it's why you can be a theologian. You can be a pastor in some denominations or a biblical scholar and not actually walk with the Lord. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount describes his disciples in terms of their character and what they do. Not what they think necessarily or can produce for a standardized test. It's why James famously asked, do you have faith? Great, well done. What does your life look like? How are you living? That's discipleship. Pilgrimage is related to this. It's living with the conviction and the confidence that your life is heading towards God. So even though this life is transitory, which it is, and one day we will all be in the ground for those who belong to God, even that bleak outcome is not the end. It's just not. We have hope beyond the grave, beyond old age, beyond disease, beyond COVID, beyond the loss of our circumstances. Now, that does not mean we discount the life we are living right now. Lots of Christians make that mistake. No. If you hold to a view that thinks this world is not my home, and I can't wait to leave it, and everything here is garbage and wicked and evil, which, by the way, is an unbiblical point of view, you will miss our calling as his people to be in the world as salt and light. And you might even be tempted to think that anything that is pleasurable or good or joyful or fun is therefore evil. There is so much that's worth fighting for now. There are simple and profound joys that God gives now, even in the midst of pain and sorrow. And we should love this world because our God loves it. What we are supposed to do then is see all of life in light of God and how he describes this world and what he has promised to do for us in this world. So when the psalmist says, blessed are those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways, that's what's in mind. That short little verse basically encompasses the whole Old Testament. Blessed are those who know their lives are wrapped up in God's life and want to learn to live according to him right now. To live for God is what it is to be a human because he made us to live like this. And that's, that's why choosing to live according to the world is a far harder reality, though it is the easier choice to make. It may feel like freedom 
or pleasure or self-realization or self-expression. And when you get those, those affirmations, those likes, it is incredible. But what initially feels good eventually kills you. So it's like that, that dopamine hit, the first bite of birthday cake, you know what I'm talking about? Like the extra icing, like that first bite, you're all in and it's like, oh. But after the hundredth piece of cake, you are sick from it all. And in America, we keep eating the cake, hoping despite how bad we feel that it will in the end give us life. When the psalmist talks about walking in God's ways, he doesn't mean be a good person. And it's strangely popular right now uh, to want to be a good person. People are rushing to prove just how good they are and are quick to point out, you know, when they think someone is not good. And I find it, you know, just kind of beautifully ironic that corporations will spend millions of dollars on advertisement telling us about whatever good thing they think they've done, hoping it will get us to buy their stuff. And while it's commendable to want to be good, and I'm not trying to be cynical or, or ugly here, it's just that, you know, apart from God, that desire is more often selfish than anything else. But when you consider like the Ten Commandments, for example, God is, does not begin with, hey, Israel, be good. No, he begins with his love, and his grace, and his mercy. You never see any of the disciples talk as if righteousness or goodness is a goal in itself. Now, that's what moralism teaches. And of course, we live in very moralistic times. No, God, with God, his love comes first. This is why the Ten Commandments begin with, I am the Lord your God, I am Yahweh, who brought you out of Egypt and out of slavery. That's a salvation statement. If God was just after morality, the Ten Commandments would say, listen, be a good person and live, and here's 10 ways to do that. Go get it. In fact, being in a relationship with God wouldn't even matter. To walk in God's ways is not primarily about morality in and of itself. It's not trying to be a good person or making sure you've perfectly kept the Ten Commandments, which are impossible in this life. No, it's centering our lives on God. You aren't, in reality, pursuing the laws at all. You're pursuing Him. They could express through those laws. That's why Jesus summarizes the law as loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, the psalmist says that those who uh, walk in the ways of the Lord will eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around you. So this is where Americans typically run off the rails and read the Bible in a prayer of Jabez, prosperity gospel sort of way, if you remember that whole movement back in the, what, early 2000s. Christians have mistakenly pursued happiness. It's written in our Constitution. They have mistakenly pursued happiness instead of pursuing contentment. L.M. Sacasis noted that, that just about every aspect of our culture is designed to make us think that happiness or something like it always lies on the other side of more. Let me read that again. Just about every aspect of our culture is designed to make us think that happiness, 
or something like it, always lies on the other side of more. I just mentioned one of the chief sins of my life, and I don't think I'm alone. The psalmist isn't talking about the pursuit of happiness here. He's he's echoing the promises God made to his people before they entered Canaan, that if they would just remain faithful to him, he would bless them in a new Eden-like land as male and female together as what he had always intended for humanity. So if Israel would just trust the Lord, he would provide for them. He would make them fully alive humans as he had created them to be. But even beyond the covenant promises of Deuteronomy where you, you read that, like what we see with, with in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, what we read here is, is basically the case. It's basically the case. It's not always the case, but it's basically the case. If you stay faithful with God, your life with him will, will be okay. So for example, you know, if you walk in the ways of the Lord, it's gonna directly affect your work. It just will. Now that does not mean God is going to give you the perfect job and the perfect fulfillment of you, which is what Americans want their jobs to do. Jobs aren't capable of doing that. Only God can do that for you. No, it means among other things that you will work at your job as unto God, even as you are dependent on him for your production. And notice that the psalmist doesn't put a number on that blessing. He doesn't say, you're going to be famous. You're going to be beautiful. You're going to be rich. You're going to have your dream house. That's what we want him to say, but it's not what he says. To be blessed is to enjoy God's favor wherever you are called to work. Now, this does not mean that your work will not be without problems or that you won't endure real frustration. I mean, the curses of Genesis 3 are real. I'll put this in perspective. I love my job, but it is not without its frustrations and its problems. No, the promise is that God's favor rests on us, whatever work he has called us to do, and that through him, we will be a blessing. That's the production there. We will be a blessing wherever he has placed us. This is why your work no matter how much you get paid for it, no matter how much you get recognized for it, no matter the glory you might receive for it. And by the way, most of the work we do is unpaid and inglorious. Your work matters to God and his kingdom, both in this life and the life to come. It's why Henry Nouwen, who I quoted at the beginning of this service, is one of my heroes. I mean, that man was at the top of the academic world. He had taught at Notre Dame, Harvard, and Yale. I mean, it doesn't get any higher than that, right? And he gave it all up to work, work at La Arche in, in Ontario, which is a community uh, for people with developmental uh, disabilities who have to live with assistance. So think about that. Man is at the top of his game. Not quite a Nick Saban, but he's at the top of his game. And he went from the halls of Harvard in Yale to an assisted living community where some of the people could hardly speak, let alone read. Which work mattered more to God? It's a false dichotomy. Did you catch that? I know what you're all thinking. Well, the other one, false dichotomy. The question is, are you willing to serve where God has placed you? Or are you dreaming of something along the lines of whatever you think will finally, ultimately make you happy? 
If you're trying to pursue a job like that, you're going to be unhappy. You just are. Well, the psalmist speaks of a man's wife being like a fruitful vine and his children like olive shoots around his table. And we might be tempted to think of this like maybe the Mormons do, where women are groomed to be in the background submissively in service to men producing children, and that's about it. That's a false picture. That's a false picture of what God intends for his feminine image bearers. I think a fruitful vine has to do with Proverbs 31 in the portrait of the godly and industrious woman who uses her skills and talents in partnership with her husband to be a gift for the life of the community. Just go read it. It's incredible. The biblical vision for godly womanhood is so much richer and deeper and industrious than most American Christians realize. I should spend a sermon series on it. Now, if you look at Psalm 127, the psalm right before this one, it says that children are a heritage from God, a reward, a treasure. So if you are granted to get married, guess what? That's a gift. It's a gift. The purpose of that marriage is to be life-giving partners for the community. If a couple then is given children, that is a gift too. But if you don't get married or don't have children, that is not a sign of God's disfavor. Lots of evangelicals have taught that. It's false. It doesn't make you weird or unfaithful or out of accord with God's will. It means he has uses for you. Perhaps you wouldn't necessarily have chosen for yourself, but he still loves you. He still has tremendous uses for you. Marriage and children are not the end-all, be-all of God's blessing. I mean, otherwise, some of the most notable people in Scripture, Paul, Jesus, did not enjoy God's favor then. Men and women who pursue God, who live a life of repentance, who actively turn to God, especially in their frailty and in their sin and in their weakness, they will be a blessing to each other and to their communities. And those communities, in turn, will be seasoned by their work and by their life and by the salt of their godly children. Good marriages are at root deep partnerships based on mutual self-sacrifice and submission that flows from the love of Christ. You know, so the greatest love of all, contrary to Whitney Houston, is not to love yourself. It's to let go of yourself and the pursuit of the good of someone else. And when we fail to do it, and I certainly, I certainly fail to live up to the very things I'm preaching here. That love is expressed in apologies and repentance and granting forgiveness. Think about it this way. You know, Jesus, as the rightful king of all things, lived out both self-sacrifice and submission. He did both. There is nothing inherently feminine or masculine about those things. No, self-sacrifice and submission are what love looks like. So when spouses live this out, and again, it won't be perfect, and there'll be plenty of need for apologizing, guess what? The marriage will actually be characterized by God's presence. And you definitely know it when you see it. And their kids see it too. And it's easy, you know, to be nice to each other or to put up with each other. I mean, anybody can do that. But to be Christian is to pursue a self-sacrificing, submissive love as Christ loved his Father and his people. That's what the psalmist is after. Now, this, of course, will also impact your children. So when you walk in the ways of the Lord with your children, you aren't teaching them moralism. 
Are there moral lessons? Of course, but you're not teaching them moralism. You aren't teaching them a system of right and wrong. You are showing them how to pursue God himself. You are trying to be a carpenter with a young apprentice. You aren't just teaching them how to be polite or how to get by for the next 30 years or how to get the so-called right job. No, you are preparing them for a life lived with God forever. And more than anything else, more than future financial success, more than having stuff, more than having good experiences, more than fitting in, you want them to grow in the Lord and walk in his ways. That's the goal. You don't long for them to get into the right schools or have security or material blessing. Those things are fine. But you know what? What is rarely said among people in our circles is that they can also be incredibly dangerous to the soul, and the pursuit of those things can ruin a kid. They are, at best, as good as they are, temporary and fleeting. No, you long for your kids to know the Lord because you know that life with him is the best life there is, and that this relationship will affect everything in their life for eternity. You know, personally, as much as I long for my sons to have a good and rich life, which I do, I much rather my sons live in poverty, but with faithfulness, giving themselves over to the gifts, to be gifts for the world, than I would to see them attend an Ivy League school, as good as that is, you know, enjoying great material success, but not knowing the Lord. You know, to lead your kids this way, really to apprentice them in the Lord, is not just reading Bible verses to them, though that's important. It's not just attending worship, though that is critical. It's living this life out, this life out in, in front of them, warts and all. It's talking through hard things. It's wrestling with them. It's refusing to give up on them. It's time intensive. It's setting your love on them and thus sacrificing for them. And it begins and ends with the love of God. So the psalmist ends with the hope that God will bless his people with long life. He wants to see his children's children. He wants to see Jerusalem prosper. It's a simple pleasure, you know, one that, that God sometimes gives to his people, but not always. And the people of God, they know that whether they live or die, whether Jerusalem makes it or not, whether they die young and don't see their grandchildren, that we have the ultimate blessing of God himself. We are disciples on a pilgrimage to God. We will know him. We will know him face to face in this life or the next. And whether we live or we die, he has promised us that resurrection is our future and that it's coming. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are so good, and your steadfast love endures forever. What a privilege that you know us, that you have set your name on us, that you know everything about us, our inward being, our hopes, our fears, our shame. You've given us our talents, our production. You've given us all good things, even the simple joy, even the simple breath we take in, all gifts from you and that you continue to stay faithful and pursue us in all good things. Lord, you are good.
and your steadfast love endures forever. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.